I did some of the things that I think residential people do and, and, and commercial guys should be doing, right? Uh, as soon as I got licensed, as soon as I picked the market that I was going to focus on, I, I started canvassing by door knocking. Um, people can't tell you no as quickly as they can on the phone, right? You can't hang up on a person when you're in front of them, right? You have to give me some time of day. So I actually hit the ground running very quickly. Um, I think within my first month, I had four listings. I ended up selling two of those. Uh, so I got paid within three months, which is great. That 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 was my kickstart into it. And, and the way it happened, frankly, I was at a, I was at an office, and I overheard a conversation between two investors saying, "Hey, I think this neighborhood's going to pop off. I think this is going to be the next neighborhood." And it was one that's very close to the design district, uh, where all the fashion brands are, the Rodeo Drive of Miami, yeah. if you will. And uh, I overheard the conversation. I was like, "All right, well." If these guys are, are are going in there, that's that's where I'm going to start canvassing, and, and that's what I did. So the question is this: How do most agents succeed in today's competitive real estate market when all the successful agents are keeping the secrets to themselves? So that's the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. I interview agents from all over the world. I ask them their tactics and they share all of their secrets with me so we can give them to the world. I'm Aaron Amuchastegui and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Hey, Real Estate Rockstars, this is Aaron Amuchastegui. We're going to have some fun today. I've already spent a few minutes talking to my next guest, Miguel Pinto from Miami, Florida, Apex Capital Realty is his company. He has grown like just a really, really huge commercial business out there. And one of the most things I was intrigued with was just the idea of commercial in Miami. If you've never been to Miami, it is just a giant city. There's so many different things going on over there, like so many different cultures, so many different things mixed in, uh, always stuff going on. And I think being a commercial uh, broker, commercial agent out in Miami has to be a busy time. So I'm really excited for you guys to get to hear about this. Miguel, I know we've already been chatting, but thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to this conversation with you. Yeah. So how long have you lived out there? I've been in Miami since 2012. It's been here right. yeah, 11 years or so. What brought you out there? I came down here for school. Uh, I loved it and decided to stay here and make it my home. Yeah. So you went out there for school and you stayed. And then when did you get into real estate? I got into real estate shortly after graduating from college. Um, you know, my dad, my dad, uh, so my parents are Colombian. I was actually born in Colombia. I came to the U.S. when I was seven. Uh, but my dad's a developer in Colombia. And so I kind of been around real estate my entire life. I remember he would have me walk lots back in Colombia on things he was going to build. So always been around it. And then I love the business aspect of it on the commercial end. So decided to go into commercial brokerage. Yeah, I grew up around construction and, you know, construction, new, new home construction and custom homes and things like that. And that first spurred my interest with real estate. And I thought I was going to go different directions and then found my way uh, back into it, but had that a similar background of knowing it my whole life. Now, having a developer in Colombia, that's got it. That's a that's really, really interesting um, as you get to you know transition that over into Miami. I'm going to Colombia for the first time in about a month and a half with a bunch of friends. I'm looking forward to it. Nice. Here it's a fun, uh, amazing place to go uh, see things out there. So you, so twenty, so you moved out to to Miami. You went to school out there. Decided to stay. And and what did you study in school? I did international business, and then I also got a management degree. Oh, cool! 
So the and did, when you first started school, did you know you were going to do commercial real estate? I had an idea that I would, that that's where I wanted to go and that's what I wanted to get into. So yeah. So what what were the challenges? So I hear from a lot of people that getting into commercial is, I guess, in general, just tougher to break in because your first deal. I think it's the story tells, or maybe it's a misnomer, but it's like your first deal is like a three or four. It's a multi-million dollar. They're not small deals. Your first deal in commercial, and it's hard to get your first. It's harder to get your first deal. It's more challenging than let's say buying a house, because if you're going to buy a house, there's you could get a very inexpensive one. It's just kind of easier to break into. Am I right or am I wrong? Like, is it is it more challenging, or or how challenging was it for you to actually like get going? as a commercial broker, so young in your real estate career, like that's where you started. Yeah, look, so I, I can't speak on the, on the resi end, but what I can tell you, when we hire agents, we want them to have anywhere from nine months to a year's worth of their cost of living saved up, right? Because your first deal may not hit until that time frame. If it happens before, kudos to you. You beat out the majority of the people out there, the majority of the brokers or realtors out there, but that's not common. And I think it just takes, you have to learn a few more things than, than traditional residential selling. So I, th I think that's what I would attribute it to. For me, you know, I did some of the things that I think residential people do and, and, and commercial guys should be doing, right? Uh, as soon as I got licensed, as soon as I picked the market that I was going to focus on, I, I started canvassing by door knocking. People can't tell you no as quickly as they can on the phone, right? You can't hang up on a person when you're in front of them, right? You have to give me some time of day. So I actually hit the ground running very quickly. Um, I think within my first month, I had four listings. I ended up selling two of those. Uh, so I got paid within three months, which was great. But that, that, that was my kickstart into it. And, and the way it happened, frankly, I was, at a, I was at an office and I overheard a conversation between two investors saying, hey, I think this neighborhood's going to pop off. I think this is going to be the next neighborhood. And it was one that's very close to the design district. Uh, where all the fashion brands are, the Rodeo Drive of Miami, yeah. if you will. And uh, I overheard the conversation. I was like, "All right, well, if these guys are are, are going in there, that's that's where I'm going to start canvassing." And, and that's what I did. So the so I love the first thing you said. If you're going to get into commercial, have a year's worth of income saved up because the deals are bigger, but they're going to take longer. And I think that's probably good advice for real estate in general. But the, but if I was going to come up with like an average or a mean, I would say that, that it takes longer to get your first bigger commercial transaction. It does get your first house. If you're a new agent, how do you canvas a commercial property? What's that? What is that conversation? Like when you're like, you're walking into a retail store, you're walking into a commercial building or you're, you know, so what's, how are you generating those leads as you're canvassing? I have to imagine it's different than what I'm picturing. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it... So I, I can talk about how I started and then what we do now, right? And, and oh, yeah, and both. Yeah, how you started because you learned, and then what, and then what you recommend. Perfect. So how I started was I would spend half my week door knocking. And so what would I do, right? I would look at, I would go on property appraisers, which there's every county has it in the country, and if the mailing address matched the the mailing address on the tax uh, on the tax bill matched the address of the property, I knew that there was an owner user situation or. They were there, right? Maybe they took a space uh, within the bigger property, but they 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 ran their business out of there. So th those are the ones that I would focus on door knocking, and then I would crank out a hundred calls a day. Um, you know, because I knew fifty people wouldn't pick up. I would talk to fifty people, 
And out of those 50, you know, can I get five appointments out of those? Can I get 10% of those to come in and, and meet with me? Right. And, and that's how I started. Um, nowadays, our team just takes a much more targeted approach. So everyone here focuses on a vertical, either an, uh, either an asset class or a neighborhood. So for certain neighborhoods, the, the more prized neighborhoods will throw industry events where we'll bring all the, sh all the stakeholders together, right? All the different owners, um, anyone involved in that neighborhood. Um, and we get a lot of business out of that. We also do cold calling. I think the way that you're going to make money in this business still to this day is just proactively reaching out. Um, unless you're spending millions of dollars marketing, you're not going to have a, a, a huge inbound business unless you create it. And that takes time. So still to this day, we, you know, we train our agents on how to cold call, what to say, what's the interest generator. How do you keep somebody on the phone? They've gotten 12 calls today. Why are they going to talk to you? Why are they going to see you? And uh, yeah, that's kind of part of uh, how we do it. Yeah, I like that. That's smart. So if it, it was a, a commercial property, I think in general as an investor, yeah, my mailing address is never the house that I bought or the apartment I bought or, or something else. And I guess it goes the same for commercial and you could figure it out a lot of times if it's a rental or not based on is the mailing address for the tax roll the same or different than the property address you're doing the same thing for commercial and then uh, the owner user scenario was a better chance that you were going to be able to show just kind of show up at that business and maybe talk to the person that owned the, the building you know right. so the and you're like okay so you own this building what are you doing here they're running some sort of a business and so now you're starting that conversation for do they want to sell or are they going to sell later or what's going to happen when they retire or, or anything else as you're having uh, those conversations? So how many, so you've done a ton of transactions. What's like, like what's your transaction? What's your revenue? I guess, I guess your, uh, how, how much in transactions have you done? So we average around $400 million in transactions per year. So 400 million transactions a year. How many people um, are on that team that's making that, those numbers up? We have a team of 35 or so agents and, you know, the 80-20 rule, 80-20% uh, procured 80% of their results. And the, I'm reading some of our other notes. So you've done, you've done more than, than 2 billion in sales. Yeah. Part of the, you know, Inc's 5,000 fastest growing companies. The, and when they're doing that, are they using that on revenue or team size or, or how are revenue. they, how are you getting judged as you grow? Revenue. Revenue. Hey listeners, Aaron here. I just want to tell you about something I'm super, super excited about. You know, a couple months ago, I had a bunch of people in my office in Austin and I taught what I called my foreclosure masterclass. It was to teach investors how to make money with distressed real estate investing through foreclosures and other sorts of leads that are out there of people that are desperate to sell or need to sell and maybe they don't even know it yet and that process. Well, we had so much fun when people, everyone came to the office. So many people said they wanted to do it again. I recorded the class. It's now live and available for purchase. So if you're interested in learning about becoming an investor and learning about becoming an investor agent, being able to educate yourself uh, some more around foreclosures, about distressed real estate and how to get those, go to the foreclosuremasterclass.com, the foreclosuremasterclass.com. All right, back to the podcast. So what was that scale like? So, so meaning, so like year one, you're starting out, you're out there door knocking, you actually got paid within a few months because you did really good. So how many, how much, how much did you make your, like your first year? I think year one, I think I made maybe 120 grand. Yeah. Um, were you like, this is amazing? Like when we had $120,000 is life changing stuff or were you I mean, like, 
you know, I was, I was, I was 22, 23. So look, I, I was in a very different stage back then. So I had money to go out to the bar and buy drinks for my friends and whatever I wanted to do. Yeah, for, most 20 somethings aren't making 120,000 a year for sure. For, for my living, like I, I was living okay. Right. Uh, but I've always, you know, I've always been very ambitious in, in, in what I actually want to do. So, you know, I was like, okay, how do I add a zero to this? How do I make it more interesting? Um, and that's the way I look at it. Right. So that, to me, that was like a benchmark. Okay. Year one, this is what we did. How do we get, how do we double that next year? And how do we keep doubling uh, from there on? Yeah. So what do you think the, mar the what are the upcoming market trends out there in Florida? Cause you said that like, I think a lot of your business was kind of getting in early, you kind of overheard some other people saying it was going to pop. You followed along and that worked out. What do you think is going to happen in the future out there? Um, look, Miami's growing at a very fast pace. Uh, you and I had a conversation earlier before the podcast, right? Similar to Austin. I think Austin and Miami were the big winners of COVID. Um, and I think they continue to be the winners. Uh, blame it on politics, blame it on the weather, blame it on whatever you want. But, uh, you know, I think as, as long as the sun keeps shining and the and we remain a tax free state, Florida is going to keep growing. And Miami is the ideal, the ideal city here, right? This is where you want to be. We have the beaches, we have the infrastructure. I think we're the only team in the country that can say we have seven uh, pro teams here. We just got messy. I don't know if you follow soccer, but oh, I know uh, that one for sure. You know, so Miami's going through through its own renaissance right now. The trends here, um, what what real estate moves this city, right? So there is a bunch of glass box buildings, glitzy buildings that are beautiful that are being developed. Um, you have companies and funds like Citadel moving here. George Zoro's, his fund moved here. Um, we have technology companies moving here. Founders Fund moved out here. So we have a lot going for us. Um, what we focus on is investment sales um, and land for development. So we work with a lot of the developers who are building these beautiful buildings that when you fly into Miami, you see. Um, I think we're going to continue to see development happening. Um, luxury multifamily development, uh, condo development on the residential end. And then on the the other trend that we're seeing is industrial right um multifamily and industrial were the asset classes that the cap rates have remained fairly low because the low level of risk so we're seeing miami is not a logistical hub just for when you look at it on a, on a map you know we are at the bottom of the state we are not in the middle where you can access a bunch of a bunch of density but south florida is the most dense part of the state so I think, therefore, uh, you're going to keep seeing a lot of industrial being built. Uh, Miami's covered by on the east by the Atlantic Ocean to the west by the Everglades. So we don't have a lot of land. And so what, what we've been doing a lot lately is doing assemblages where we're just putting together a bunch of land, different owners, and then selling it to, the, to a developer. He's knocking out. He's knocking down all those buildings and, and, and developing what he'll, what he'll be developing in the future. When you go and do that, right? Cause you're assembling a lot of different properties together. Do you like, do you have to keep it a secret? Like you're getting a, like you're, cause it kind of <laughs> feels like if somebody knew that you bought all their neighbor's houses, they're going to be holding out cause they know that you're, that that's the plan. So the, and I think that's a big, when I think about wanting to build, uh, you know, in downtown Austin someday, right. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to build one of those towers, like the ones that I drive by and I, and I go down there and look at stuff and it really is the only possibility is like this assemblage of land. 
Uh, mm -hmm. And you start to think about those challenges. So when you're doing that, is it like uh, is it a secret when you're doing it? You're trying to tie up properties. So it really depends who we're representing, right? So if we are actively trying to put together our land and then bring it out to the wider market and try to garnish the biggest offers. Then we're going to talk to all the owners. We're going to get them together and say, "Hey, guys, together you guys can get more for your for your properties, right? Let's go to market together. This is the price that we think we can get." Let's do it together. If we are hired by a developer or just a private land banker individual, yeah, we're very quiet about it, right? So we'll approach them. Um, we've used tactics that, you know, they uh, we hide the buyer name. We don't let them know what it is. Uh, we make the effective date of the contracts the same day. And we're crossing our fingers that the neighbors aren't talking to each other because, you know, you could easily have someone be be the holdout in a, in a deal and you just kill your entire deal right so generally yeah if we're representing a buyer on this we are very very quiet about it uh we don't want to let the other other owners know what's going on i think it's a brilliant development tactic that you just mentioned though about especially as an agent not necessarily as a, as a developer but as an agent going and talking to all the neighbors together and saying Hey, look, guys, I think that if we package these together, we're going to be able to sell this and I'll be able to get you paid more if we do it together instead of less. Because that does two things, right? But I, it, I mean, it makes it to where the now you have the ability for the deal to happen and there's way less chance of getting a holdout because they know they're getting more instead of less. Mm -hmm. But then it also gets you the, the, the listing or the commission or whatever on all the deals together. You're like, hey, like you like. If, if somebody it's like getting way more at the same time, Hey, let us represent you together. You're going to make more. Plus we're going to get all of you guys in one pop. You're going to make more. Um, it's a pretty brilliant. I hadn't thought about that of actually just like telling them exactly what is happening. Like, no, we're going to sell this to a developer, but your house is better valued as a package instead. So let's, you know, let's do it all in one, um, big group. I like that. Um, as, totally. as I mean, Aaron, think, think about it from this standpoint, right? You go on Cron on Congress Avenue in mm -hmm. Austin. You have yeah. a, a certain amount of properties, a certain amount of folios that front Congress. Those are the real valuable ones. The ones on the, the street behind it aren't as valuable as the ones that front Congress, right? right? So the owners of the folios behind the main artery, the main commercial artery, for the sake of the example, Congress Avenue, those guys will be able to get similar pricing for the land as those that own on Congress because they're part of the, the larger assemblage. Right? Because the developer is just saying, okay, great, I'm going to pay 400 bucks a foot. I don't care if I'm paying this guy 500 and that one 300 and we average out of 400. He doesn't care. He's just looking at one global price versus the individual owners that are looking at, you know, what, what, what's it mean for their plate? What, what are they taking home? So that really helps out uh, when, when you're able to bring it together between all the owners, that, that really helps them out. So the that's so that that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk like cap rates for a little bit. You talked about industrial and multifamily values haven't come down much. What well, we've seen a lot in um, in Texas or in Phoenix when it comes to commercial and pretty much most of commercial, you know, storage units, things like that. As soon as cap rates went, or as soon as like the Fed raised rates, people were like, oh, instead of it being valued at a five cap, now it's valued at a seven cap. So properties automatically lost 30% in, um, in value, in refinancing value. And then we're seeing a lot of like balloons come due where developers weren't really in trouble. It's just time. Like those commercial loans are five-year, seven-year loans. And the people that are resetting right now, it's like, wait a second. 
Rates are now 7% and your property is worth 30% less than it was a year ago. Not because it's making less money, but because the way people value commercial. Are you seeing pricing values come down on office at all with cap rate stuff? And have you seen anything in the news of like, hey, this loan is coming due? Like the Fairmont's going to have to sell to a new developer. They're not really in trouble, but they can't get, they're not going to be able to refi. They've got like 300 million in equity, but the, that hotel's going to have to sell because their loan's due and they can't, and they can't get one that is actually going to work. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're seeing that every day. I think the biggest crisis in, in commercial real estate today in South Florida is price discovery. Nobody knows what things are worth, right? Sellers are on one end of the spectrum. The buyers are on the other end. And there's a 20 to 25% uh, gap in pricing yeah. between those two individuals, right? So, yes, uh, I think anything besides a Class A office building in Miami is in trouble here. The funds, these the, the, these companies that are willing to pay the high price per square foot, uh, they are going to the new Class A offices. They are not going to Class B, Class C offices. They don't care about the value play. They're they're, they're strictly going to Class A. So, what what's happening with those Class B, Class C offices, and maybe in the suburban markets within Miami? Um, there's been new legislature that's come out, um, the Senate Bill 102, Florida Senate Bill 102, which allows you to essentially turn things that were not zoned for multifamily or for residential use into residential. So mm -hmm. especially these office buildings, these older office buildings, 1960s, 70s, 80s, that have a huge surface parking lot have now become valuable for development purposes, right? They'll knock down the building and now they have three, four acres to build on and, and do residential. So that's been the trend on that end. Um, but if you have long leases with tenants or holdout tenants where you don't have a termination clause and you cannot buy them out, you are stuck. They are extremely hard to refinance those properties. Um, and if you have a loan coming due, I mean, you're, you're going to be in trouble, right? So we actually track that very well. We, and that's some of the targets that we're going after, right? If you are in trouble, how do we work with people that need to sell and not that want to sell? Because if you're out yep. here trying to break a record in this market, you're, probably not our ideal client. If you need to sell, we can get you out of trouble. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a huge opportunity for commercial real estate right now. I think that there's yeah, a lot of people in trouble that did nothing wrong, right? Like the, that's mm -hmm. the crazier part of what I've seen this phenomenon happening. Like the people that are in trouble because the cap rate changed, it's like they bought a multifamily. It was worth 10 million bucks. The it, they've even raised rents 10% in the last three years. Their balloon is now due, but now it's worth 7 million bucks just from the cap rate change. They're like, they don't make less money, but the, but cap rates went from five to seven. And so that's their big transaction. But I think the opportunity in, but you're not seeing that with multifamily and industrial, we're seeing with office. I think there's this opportunity in office for buyers to be ready to invest. Um, it is that interesting gap where not all sellers know the value change yet, or they're still negotiating. I'm in an office building where I'm like one of three tenants left in this giant building. And I went to them and said, Hey, will you, my lease is up in October. I'm not going to renew. I'm the biggest tenant. And said, but will you sell me the building? And they're like, no, we're not a seller. We're a buyer. And I'm thinking when I moved into this building, Wells Fargo had the bottom two floors of this and a bank and it was full. And now Wells Fargo has gone and there's like three tenants left. Like, come on, like, but the only, I think what, I think what they become is what you're talking about is motivated sellers. Like when do they actually get motivated? Because the gap between what a seller wants and what a buyer wants is only going to hit. I mean, a buyer can only pay what they can like pay 
based on cap rate, based on lending, things like that. If it appraises at seven, they're not going to pay nine. They're just not. They're not like it's not going to happen. So the gap between a buyer and a seller, the only thing that gets it closer is when that seller becomes motivated or motivated by four, you know, motivated because they're they're retiring, motivated because they're leaving, motivated because something's happening, <clears throat> or more often those loan renewals right now, where as soon as they get that notice, it's like, oh, and in 60 days or in 90 days, I've got a, my notes now due. So I think there's probably, you're probably looking at data and trying to find that data right now on the commercial stuff. But I think there's, for people nationwide out there, they're thinking either in commercial or thinking about getting into commercial or even these smaller office type buildings. I think that's the single biggest opportunity we're gonna see over the next 18 months. And there is a way to use like my software or other people's software out there to go find what is the loan on this thing when is it actually expiring? Because if you can get to them first, you know, and just keep reminding them like, hey, I'm here when you're ready. They'll be, when they get that notice from the bank, they're ready. It's wild. Yeah. And, and, you know, once you start getting into that world and start cohorting the information that you're getting, like what we found is that we want to start the conversation nine months before the loan is due. Because at that nine month mark to six months to maturity, those three months, they're out there talking to lenders, uh, mortgage brokers. They're getting the bad news. Yeah. That's when they have six months left and they haven't made a decision on what they're doing. We need that marketing time, right? We, when we get a listing, we, we don't take it out to market till three weeks later. It takes us three weeks to pr uh, produce the marketing materials that we need. Um, and then we market the property for 45 to 60 days and then we start fielding offers. So we need every bit of four or five months and you don't want to get caught up on a, on a notice of default from a maturity standpoint, because now you're going to get hit with default interest, right? And, and in Florida, the highest you can charge is 25%, right? That is, yeah. Your equity will melt. That is an ice cube under the sun if you get to that point. So not to mention now you it's going to be written about on the real deal and all these other publications. And, 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 and now all you're that guy, news. right? So All those so, big ones are all over the news. The I mean, the real deal is one of the best you know pages that, that shares all of that. And uh, it is wild. So it's it's interesting about that point there. It's like reminding me of something, or, or you taught me something with that. Is it really is the reality that you that six months is almost too late? Whereas yeah. in housing, or even most like some multifamily, you know, but but residential in general, thirty to sixty days. You know, a lot of times to get a discounted offer, pretty reasonable. Um, but for commercial, yeah, it's a much different play. It's not you know you're talking higher dollars talking you know different ways to do it and so that's smart so for listeners when you're, if you're trying that business plan in residential multifamily, you can get the more recent stuff but if it's commercial if they've already got their 90-day notice of default or in texas it's a 30-day notice of default it's too late because they're you're, you're not gonna be able to market a property like that in that amount of time so, uh, so you've built like a big team and a big office over there right the what are some of the like the growth success advice that you would give people? Because doing you know two and a quarter billion in sales, that's not small. Um, but a lot of people struggle. There's like two different brains or two different mindsets, right? Like I, I love being an entrepreneur. Um, I love it when I'm essentially I did the best when I was doing all the work. If I drove by the houses, if I the door knocked, if I bid, but also that becomes a really tough job to do. So then I had I've had to hire people and grow. And I've got, you know, six or seven businesses right now. I was looking at the org chart yesterday. It's pretty crazy. But the challenge is always like uh, my aunt, but the business management brain is way different than the entrepreneur brain. 
Totally. Like I like to go like hustle and be an entrepreneur and managing stuff is hard. And I, and I don't really like it. And I, and it's where, and it's where, it's where I'm weak. Um, but the, but you've grown, you know, you've managed and scaled, you know, some companies or this company. So like what advice would you give people or maybe even just tell the story of like, did you ever get to a point where you're like, yeah, I want to grow a business here. Yeah. So look, I, I, when I first started the firm, it was, with the intention to, for me to broker a lot of deals, right? And for me to have some human capital help me out, right? Other brokers uh, turning over rocks and, uh, and helping me out with discovery of, of potential deals. And I did that for the, maybe the first two years of the company. And uh, I mean, Aaron, you know, like you're gonna, it's very different being a practicing broker or it, it, and very different being a CEO of a company and having to deal with marketing, hiring and firing, uh, HR, all the different components, right? So I've never really been good at operations, nor do I care to be the best at that. I'd rather hire the best person I can possibly find. So I was able to hire a good friend of mine who's our COO today that really helped get us organized from an operational standpoint and uh, add some systems, some procedures, uh, added some people and got us to a point where uh, that we were running very different than when I was running it. Right. And, and, and doing that allowed me to focus on scaling, and growing the business. So what, what grows and scales a brokerage? You are in the people business. You have to hire and retain the best talent you can possibly find. Um, so my whole my spiel to my guys is like, hey, I'm, I'm here to make everyone here a millionaire. Right. If you don't want to be a millionaire, I cannot work with you because you just don't have to drive. You don't have the consistency. Uh, you don't know how to utilize the resources, the technology. Uh, it can mean a whole lot of things. But that what I do best is try to unlock their potential on, on what they could possibly do. But they have to give me the commitment and, uh, and yeah, putting the right people in the right seat of the bus. So, again, I told you about bringing in a CEO that helped us with our, our operations. When we first started, our brokers would do their own offering memorandums. We hired an in-house graphic designer. We hired a transaction coordinator. We started spending money on, on, on people just to make our shared services, our offering to my clients, which are my clients are the agents. My clients is not the property owner, making it better for them. Hey, real estate rock stars. We only have a few minutes left in this episode, but before we get to the grand finale, I just want to say, as always, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. You know, podcasts are obviously free. You don't have to pay to listen to the podcast, but if you could pay one thing, if I could charge you one thing to listen to this podcast, what I would ask you to do is go, please make a review. Go to wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's on YouTube or on Apple or Android, wherever you listen to podcasts, and go give me a review of the podcast. I read them. I listen to them. I try to make adjustments. You know, a couple of years ago, I had a ton of bad reviews on the sound quality or the number of advertisements, things like that. And I've really tried to dial in to add value for all of you guys. So please, please, please go do a review. If you want to get a, a copy of the toolbox of the stuff that you know, everybody that comes on the show, they give us some tactics. They give us something that we put in what we call our toolbox. And so to get that, you go to realestaterockstarsnetwork.com. When you get there, click on the, the toolbox and you get access to the free gift that every person that we interview on the episode provides. There's things like, you know, uh, listing tactics, how to do a presentation, you know, how to do a newsletter, all sorts of cool, fun stuff. And if you want to talk to me, go find me on Instagram at Aaron Amuchastegui. Ask me a question. I talked to so many of you guys on there. All right. 
back to the show. Thanks again for being a listener. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny conversation, Aaron, because a lot of people, like once a broker becomes successful, he's like, shit, let me go open up a brokerage. I think it's a great idea. Right. And then yeah, exactly. I that's I think, like the first thing for sure. And they fail to realize <clears throat> that it's two separate businesses. What makes money at a brokerage is not the work that you do per se from a brokering standpoint, because for that, you're really a sole practitioner who happens to have a team. You might as well stay at somebody else's shop at another brokerage, let them take on the liability, let them take on all the costs, the office expense, the technology, all the different infrastructure expenses that we have and keep brokering deals and make a lot of money. When you become the owner of a brokerage, you are in the people business and the people that, how do you make revenue is by your agents closing deals. That's the only way that you're going to make revenue. So I think people fail to realize that. And, uh, anyway, I, I, I caught on to it maybe two years deep into it. And, uh, so again, I started making the changes that I needed to make, uh, to grow that team. Uh, how do we train these guys properly? How do we give them the best technology? How do we give them the best shared services that we could possibly give them and, and really get them transaction ready as soon as we possibly can, uh, with the, with the way that we train them and, and, and then go out and sell. Yeah. No, you're totally right. Two different businesses, being an agent, being a broker or managing a team or owning an office, very different businesses. And there's, um, and it goes from, you know, how do I make money to how do they make money? And, uh, you know, people that like to coach are really good at at building that stuff up. People like to build people up, but it's that sacrifice trade off of, I'm going to spend my time to help you do deals instead of my time to help me do deals. So, It's a really fun conversation on so many things. What's next for you? Like, what are your goals now out in Miami? Like you've, you've built your brokerage, uh, you're finding more stuff. You're now marketing to people to get more transactions. It's like, there's going to be some office shifts, but like, what are your, and you've done a bunch of transactions. What are your goals now? Yeah. So a few things. Um, I am, Look, every year we invest in real estate. So I have a goal for the amount of properties or the amount of square footage that I want to own by the end of the year. Um, so we're, we're working on that. Um, we bought a couple of things this year and, and we hope to buy a few more, um, God willing. So on that end, on the investing end, that's, we have a goal there. Um, and then from, from the brokerage end, you know, we are trying to get to half a billion dollars in sales. And I like to open up another office in Palm Beach County to better serve South Florida. After that, we'll go to Orlando, Florida. And after that, we'll go to Tampa. So what do I need to do that? We've created a flywheel for our agents in the business. Uh, we got to recruit great talent. We got to train the new agents very, very well and, uh, and hope that we can mirror what we've done here in these other markets. Yeah. Very cool, man. Yeah, expansion now. Like you, you sounds like you've nailed it, in Miami, and the and and just doing that same flywheel as you go to grow into some of those other places. The it makes sense because the I mean you you can end up with having that you can only grow each market so much. I think, and mm-hmm. and it and it does it does feel like from my limited knowledge, the all those markets seem like they perform, and the the target market and the buyer are all very different, right? So the yeah. it's the same skill set of real estate. But uh, but the people buying in Orlando are a lot of people in different buying in in Miami. So the Miguel, this was a lot of fun, man. The, I wish we had more time to to keep chatting here. But for people that want to reach out to you, they want to follow along more with with what you're doing, 
maybe they have some questions about Miami real estate, or maybe they have, uh, you know, an investor or somebody head, heading your way. Uh, what's the best way people can find you? Yeah. Uh, look, always happy to help out. Um, you can reach us, uh, via Instagram, Apex Capital Realty. Shoot us, uh, a DM. You can call me 305-570-2600. Uh, you can email me, Miguel at apexcapitalrealty.com. Um, always happy, always happy to help. Cool. So Real Estate Rockstar listeners, you guys heard that. If you didn't get it, check out the show notes. We'll have his information in there. The And I recommend you reaching out to Miguel. I know that I'm going to reach out to Miguel next time I'm out in Miami. Maybe I want to see some of the projects that they've been working on. Miguel, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on the show today. Aaron, thanks a lot. Real Estate Rockstars, thanks for listening. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.